You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Kenneth. And tonight we're looking at the Star Hunter Redux episode, Black Light. The crew of the good ship Transutopian is transporting Electra, a 25-year-old raider child and gunrunner, to Ganymede for judicial processing. Unbeknownst to the crew, somewhere in the bowels of the ship, on the unexplored level 48, a convenient power surge sets a chain of events into action that leads to Colonel Bromwell, 104th Cavalry Officer, being thawed out from the hidden deep freeze after 50 years in suspended animation. His two fellow officers are dead, and the military computer system is past its best use-by date and expires almost immediately after providing the bare minimum of narrative exposition. The ship has been detecting considerable raider activity in the area. They're all heading somewhere. Dante thinks they're running away from something and is questioning Electra about that. Or pretending to ask about that, he's really just interested in finding his son, Travis. About this time, Caravaggio announces there is an intruder and, by the time Dante gets there, the colonel has already captured Lucretia and taken the ship. His ship! Fifty years ago, the Transutopian had been pressed into service as a troop carrier during the Martian Raider Wars. While the crew try to explain reality to him, he isn't interested, just babbles on about being betrayed. He locks Dante and Lucretia in the brig, along with the key, so they immediately escape after the colonel is out of sight. Caravaggio tries to alert Percy to the danger, but Percy is Percy, and the whole thing just succeeds in raising my blood pressure. She goes to the bridge. The colonel arrives. When confronted by Percy, he realizes he is living through this nightmare and gives up his will to live. Completely understandable. It's basically the same reaction I have to Percy. He wanders off to kill himself. Dante and Lucretia stop him and lock him up in the same cage with Electra for his own safety. Dante suddenly has a hunch. Maybe the raiders aren't running away. Maybe they're all heading somewhere. Using the easily obtainable data on the raider ships, courses they've been spotting, and using a simple plot, he concludes they're all heading to one place. Perhaps it's a raider cotillion. We don't know what Dante really wonders, because he's tight-lipped and just changes the course to intercept the point where all the raiders, his sworn enemy and dangerous military force, are congregating without bothering to tell anybody. This has Percy curious. Dante tries to cut a deal with Electra. Help me get my son back, and you can go free. So what's going on? Oh, this? It's just the strategically dubious plan of holding a mandatory raider's team-building retreat every four years. Mandatory? Then my son will be there. If you can get me in, I'll let you go free. He'd like Bromwell's help, too. He leaves them to consider the proposition. In the cells, Electra is getting frisky with Colonel Bromwell. The Colonel Bromwell, brilliant military strategist Bromwell, the guy who staged the amazingly wonderful Operation Blacklight 50 years ago against the Raiders, the plan so incredibly strategically brilliant that he succeeded in being completely defeated by the Raiders and having his forces wiped out at their hands. Naturally, the Raiders appreciate his strategic genius and have made him a bit of a rock star at their training academy. Electra wants to have his babies, even. 
But before she can ply him any further, Dante lets Bromwell out and given guest quarters. Bromwell, having lost his own son in Operation Blacklight, feels Dante's pain and agrees to help, but alone. Dante won't let that happen, and so the two of them decide to go on the suicide mission together. Electra gets them into the cotillion, or at least past the bouncers, and then Bromwell starts quoting revelations, which should be a warning to everyone that he's going to go off the rails. He uses a hidden ship to escape the Transutopian and crashes into a tiny part of the raiders' resort venue, killing himself and possibly a dozen or more raiders. The party spoiled, the raiders and the Transutopian leave. The end. Oh, it's another kind of painful one for me. Uh, is this on the good list or the bad list for you? This is a this one's on the good list for me. Um, huh. I can see I can I can look at this episode and I see so many Chekhovian guns lying everywhere. And mm. it's, so that comes from my point of view, having seen all forty four episodes. As it stands, it's just a lot of really kind of pointless stuff uh and 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 you know obviously you can't you can't reveal which ones of these are chekovian guns and which one of these are just genuine plot holes but um yeah so let, let's start with this one this is the biggest one that bothered me in episode three family values we learn the history of the raiders they are the Black Galaxy Marines, subjected to uh, some sort of, uh, was it the Magellan flu? Yes, it was. They get, they get sterilized, and Something so they like decide to go be raiders and start kidnapping kids. We meet members of the Black Galaxy Marines, and they're not 50-plus years old. So, what the heck uh, is, is that all about? Um, that this seems to be a direct contradiction to the history of the Raiders in this episode. Yeah, I get that point. Um, the question of timeline has, as this one I've, is one I've hinted at uh, in at least one previous podcast. But I don't, th I, know, I know we have the issue of them changing the timeline for the purposes of making it into Redux. And, and so he, when he says it's year 2276, I think it is. It's actually 86. Yeah, that still doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of the 50-year time span. It, it doesn't really matter whether it's year A or Z. You know, if, if it's been 50 years, it's been 50 years. The, the Black Galaxy Marines have, are holding up pretty well. Yeah in in that period of time so that was that one stands out to me as just feels like a bad either no, a bad I, retcon or a, a a bad plot hole i'll take that um, point also i remind you of a comment i made in one of the previous uh, podcast and that was uh, that obviously not all the raiders are sterile because the raiders have been abducting children, then the children have grown up, and so they obviously didn't get the flu. And right, I mean, Chose. yeah. So it is so the so, so kidnapping or shall we say adopting? Well, um, how long children ago does become has it become a lifestyle choice? So Dante is what Travis was lost seven years ago. Uh, at, at this point, at this point, is closer to eleven years. Eleven years, and he um, was... let's see. I seem to remember. Official word is that when the first season opened, um, uh, Dante was in his mid thirties. 
Okay, and how old was Travis when he's abducted 11 years ago? Um, About six. About six. So he's old enough to be breeding. Five, six, something like that. Yeah. Well, still technically old enough to be breeding. Yes. Perhaps not... Uh, Perhaps not legally under the jurisdiction, I don't know. But, but I mean, physiologically, he's old enough. Yes. And if, you know, I can, I can see the Raiders going on 10, 15, maybe even 20 years based on what we saw of the Black Galaxy Marines. But, yeah, anyway, that, that one was conflicting. Also, the Raiders seem a lot bigger in this. Big enough to have their, their clans and their, their, their big team building exercise <laughs> the, every four years the olympics the raiders olympics it's right. uh, uh, <laughs> the gathering the, the, a very a very unconvincing plot contrivance to me uh also considering how incredibly easy it was for dante to figure out where they were going right i mean right. every ship out there must have seen the raiders flying along on that path and said, oh uh hey they're going. Uh, they're going here. Um, okay, I'm going to be very careful about what I say here, be, for one reason, which is spoilers. Okay, but I, so I'll be somewhat vague here. The Raiders aren't exactly trying to move about incognito. They they have allies. Well, that's all I'm going to say right now. They also have people who are obviously opposed to them. Yes, uh, and they have and they have powerful allies with big guns. And cannons and the like. All right, we'll we'll. Uh, I mean, you you'll, pass that on, but I'll it, just it tell still you doesn't right strike me as uh, doesn't strike me as being a particularly uh, uh, clever strategy of bringing mandatory attendance of every raider to one spot uh, in 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 space. And well, we could we could go that a little bit further down the line about. How that looked. Um, so, um, but like I said, it was very easy for Dante to figure it out. There has to be somebody out there that doesn't like the Raiders. It seems to me like a lot of people don't like the Raiders. So it it just yeah. the go the governments mainly mm. the various yeah. federations. And I mean, we already know. I mean, I think uh, say your comment is spoilery enough. Obviously, Orchard is one of their allies because yes, we is. already know Orchard is dealing with them from previous episodes. Yes. So <clears throat> that that is, uh, uh, you know, the evil bad guys, Orchard, who appear nothing more than the evil bad guys so far, uh, definitely seem like they would be in alliance. But yeah. All right. Let's see. Do I want to... Let's let's go. I don't want to pick on Percy first off. Let's go with Bromwell. I was betrayed. I was betrayed. I, I've suffered this betrayal. I heard nothing about a betrayal or nothing that made any sense that would seem like it was a betrayal in what we got. I was thinking story. about that this afternoon as I was watching the episode again, and then and, and then so I was thinking about how to make sense of that. I, is, I can't make was it. he just talking out of his head? Was he making excuses? Was he evading responsibility? What? I don't know. That was the only one I could come up with is that maybe he's trying to make an excuse for his gross incompetence. Uh, or, but, but, I did, but I did ask myself this question today. How was it that there was only one of, and all of, I think about this, the tulip was a whole ship, big ship with at least 48 levels. 
At least. At least 48 levels. Was a troop carrier. Mm-hmm. So you have to know there are plenty of those chambers with cry, you know, there are plenty of those rooms with cry with cryogenic chambers once upon a time. Uh huh. How was it there was only one chamber left untouched, and his was the only and his was that his was that room? Well, I think I'm going to go. I'll go further and say that whole thing bothers the heck out of me. First off, I, we don't know if a troop carrier is a cryo troop carrier. I don't know. We, we aren't we aren't given that. We aren't given that uh, information. Uh, that's typically not what troop carriers are for. They're also not typically used as battle. You know, the Queen Mary wasn't used. Was it the Queen? Yeah, it was the Queen Mary. Um, was it the QE2? Maybe both. I don't remember. You know, those were used to shuttle between, not strategic ports, but in other words, secure ports. To move troops from America to Britain, or but you know they're they're not what they took in on Normandy, so you, you it feels like the tulip wasn't really used in a military capacity like that that it was that it was used as a troop carrier, which is what they say. And would they put the troops in cryogenic suspension? I don't know. I didn't get that impression. What I did get the impression was is that there was a ship, there was a hidden spacecraft on this spaceship. And based on their actions from an earlier episode, when they got a shuttle, it was like, whoa, look at the money we're going to get for this, that the owner of this craft is a, an idiot, which we know um, that they have unsearched for areas on this ship for potentially salvable, salvageable and saleable material. Oh, yeah. That doesn't make any sense at all, especially since it's been 50 years. And no you... one has searched that ship in 50 years. And and how can he be missing in action? They have the ship he was on board. <laughs> it's like, the, this is not like his ship got lost. We know right where it is. And he was assigned to it. And they didn't know where to look for him. Come on. This that doesn't is, make any sense at all. This is why... Um, perhaps someone said, I, my theory is that in universe back 50 years ago, someone said, leave him. I never liked him anyway. He's about to get me killed by taking me back and about to get us killed by taking us back to attack that place again. But still, they must have decommissioned the ship out of being a troop carrier back to civilian use. And military is usually not so lackadaisical that they don't remove all their stuff. That, that, really seems you know even if we're not talking about rudolfo not knowing what he's got and we can, i think we can assume that rudolfo didn't get it 50 years ago so it's done some other stuff maybe it went back to being a a, a cruise liner in which case wouldn't they need all the decks again i don't know it just it it wow the, um, the, there are two points here i'll take these in no particular order um First, we're dealing with the Mars Federation. Okay. Um, because it was the first Martian War. That's actually right. the name of the name of it in, in in the in the episode. The Mars Federation, as it stands in the current timeline of the series, um, is not exactly the greatest government, shall we say? Now, you won't get that from this episode, but again, I've seen all forty-four episodes, and so take my word for that. And so I could, if we project back half a century, maybe they weren't so hot then either. 
But that part really didn't bother me so much. Maybe, because, but military because, because and government. Because I, I, I knew about the Mars Federation. Um, and also especially the military in the Mars Federation and how that is in the series. So I get that. The second point about the ship is we aren't really sure about all the details of the history of the ship. We do know that prior to Rodolfo having purchased it, it's been a long time in in a junkyard. Okay. Junkyards are also usually pretty good about scrapping stuff for yeah. for salvage. Yeah, so, and we're also talking about a really, really, really big ship, so maybe there were some lazy employees. I don't know. It's possible, but I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you what I would do under these circumstances if I was Dante, and obviously I wasn't brain damaged like Dante is, um, I would be searching that ship starting right now until every inch of it has been checked. Yeah. I mean, they have a heck of a lot of time on their hands when they're transporting people to and fro that they got nothing else to do uh, except for listen to Billy Tsunami albums and and gripe at each other. So I would be I would be looking for anything else like maybe there's another ship on here. Maybe I can find something to help me find my son. Maybe I can, you know, money, anything I, I the, the, okay, and also feels, remember, it's a terrible... or remember, if you will, be also, this is from a previous, something from, now I forget which number episode it was, but it was the one where the special forces took over the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there was that graphic showing how little of the ship actually has gravity in it. Most of that ship is shut down, there's no life support in most of it, and there isn't gravity in most of it. And yet level 48 had it. Right. <laughs> I mean, this feels like, to me, this feels exactly like when they need to go to the neighboring island on Gilligan's Island where they've got a medieval castle to, to you know, it's just like, uh, how do I do this? You know, I'm not even going to bother. Let's just, let's just do it. <laughs> let's just, let's just make this one up. It, it's, it's, it's all, almost do some machina as the setup instead of the solution. Which I don't know if that technically, I don't know if that technically counts as as that thing. But anyway, that one, that one is there. So we've got Bromwell. He's, you say, he's missing in action when he should not have been. His act of suicide seemed pointless, considering how incredibly little damage he did. Which I will, I will pass on and say, was it a better explosion in the original version? It's about the same. It, it looked like he just knocked out one room and a yeah, and maybe a that's ship. What, that's yeah. what it looked like from the original. I somehow thought there was something useful throughout this whole thing. Operation Blacklight. They had some sort of nuclear atomic weapon, and they was going to try to get the Transutopian into the thing and then blow it up, killing all the raiders or anything like that. I mean, based on his actions, I was positive that that's what he was doing. And then, oh no, I'm just going to launch a little tiny scout ship and kill a few guys and die so it, much more pointless mm. and Bromwell is not exactly a um, master logician stable. he's not a great strategist yes apparently um, although, and yet he is although the Raiders <laughs> the Raiders seem to appreciate him a lot yeah well I you know I, I appreciate the losers on the other side but I don't study their I don't study them as an example of, of, of <laughs> brilliant tactical <laughs> um that also seemed 
very uh, right. I, I'm I'm not an expert on this field by any stretch of the imagination, but my understanding is that a lot of people hold, say, Robert E. Lee up as a much better tactical general than Ulysses S. Grant. Um, the, I argue the, the, with that, but yes. Well, see, that's what I say. I'm not. I I I take that as being Grant won and. Uh, Lee lost, uh, as the, I seem to recall. And, yes, he did. Um, I seem to recall that. Um, uh, I understand this is not a Civil War podcast, but I will say this: um, Pickett's charge was not exactly a masterpiece of strategy. So you know, do we still study things that Robert E. Lee did? Yes, yes, I think they do in military academies. Do we hold him up as a brilliant? strategist i don't know because you know a lot of the people that are pushing the narrative that robert e lee was a fantastic wonderful gentleman are also people who are vested in the confederacy that's true. to this day and so you can't necessarily you really want to talk to a real historian about about the the legacy of so i'm not going there but nobody in the north that isn't vested in the confederacy is looking back at that and thinking, yeah, you know, the greatest. We, we, yeah, he lost. And and you can learn something from the strategies of people who lose. And he won battles too. So if you're looking at the battles he won, you could be looking at the strategy of them and going, this is, you know, this was a good strategy. Um, so I'm not saying that they might not study his works, but they really had him up on a pedestal there. For I mean, I want to have your babies. I think she may have been leading him on a little bit there, but but nonetheless, um, it seemed a little weird that a general who failed abysmally, as far as we can tell, in the first offensive, uh, is is that much of a, a, a you know. I would have been more convinced if they'd said, "Oh yeah, okay, you lost that one, but your battle at Canaris War Four was amazing that strategy we study that one all the time it's like it's like studying Tzu Chi you know you just you study from the winning victories and and the strategies not necessarily they're they're losing ones so I, I thought that was going over the top I also thought he was being a little bit of a whiny uh well I can't use that word I thought he was being a little bit of a whiny person for complaining about not being promoted to general posthumously he was not stable. Especially after, after he failed miserably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> no wonder he didn't get promoted, even posthumously. Yeah, yeah. And they got that second-class medal. Yeah, yeah well, uh, you got a medal posthumously. I mean, you didn't leave a family behind, so it doesn't matter to your benefits. No. I, I, I don't know a lot about posthumous uh, awards. I know it's not very common uh, in the U.S. after the Vietnam War. It was very popular in Germany in World War II. But, um, you know, I, I thought a lot of it had to do with, in the U.S. anyway, to do with your military benefits. Right? You, you leave a widow and children behind and you die and they promote you to general, you get more money than if you died as a colonel. It's also often related to correcting some kind of historical injustice quite often. There you go. There you go. So, uh, and... and, and uh, Symbolic. George Washington was promoted to general of the combined armies or something like that in like 1976. Yeah. Well, well, he was been dead. That's very symbolic. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah very, it's a symbolic thing of, of 
recognizing the thing. But in in his case, it seemed wow. <laughs> it's like okay, fine, uh, off you go. Also, and and this ties in with him, so we'll we'll just go with Dante and and say his plan has no exit strategy. No, it doesn't. I noticed that. Of course, he's not exactly the, a pillar of of reason, is he? No, he's not. It, it has no exit strategy. And the sad part is, is that neither does the script, because they don't even bother to tell us how they got out alive. There is no way they got out of that alive. I mean, I'm going to protect you and keep you and, and Lucretia here on the ship, Percy. Uh, you mean the ship that's in the hands of the raiders, surrounded by the armed raiders? Yeah, you've already taken them into the suicide trap. Ah, uh, this is where uh, seeing the original versus seeing Redux makes a difference. Because uh, uh, my brain filled in the part from the um, un- from the original version of the episode where they plowed the hell out of Dodge. And, and, and they still got away when... Yeah. Every raider in existence. The raiders were busy. The ships. raiders were scattering, getting getting out of dodge too. So just everybody's getting out of dodge. The funny thing is, is that it, it goes like this: they've got the they've got the uh, the jolly old radio operator going. This is not part of the deal. You're launching a ship there, and they launch a ship. They're surrounded by raiders. They're considered potentially hostile. They destroy part of the radar raiders gathering and lucretia says the raiders are launching their ships and their weapons are coming online or something to that effect and they're powering up their weapons and then that's the last we get of it well in, in the redux version yes um yeah well but, you which, know that's which, what they're which, presenting which, as the ultimate which, and that, that that's that's an edit that's an editing error um but in the original we see the ship we see the tulip get out of there while the raiders are doing every man for himself. Huh. Uh, uh, it doesn't come off. It doesn't come off that way in this episode. No, I'll, well, I'll but, have to put it. But that's the difference between original and Redux. It's, it, it's weird when they do those things. And they, and they, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd be convinced by them getting away in the, the original version. That would, time would only tell. But... In this version, they went in on a suicide mission, all of them, and the writer didn't feel like they had a way to get them out. And and even if they hit the burners and said, let's go, just not convinced that the Raiders would let them go. I mean, they're a big lumbering hulk of a cruise liner and all of the military Raiders are there. It, it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like it would be. And, and, and they just attack them. And it doesn't appear like... I, I don't think Dante's been con- able to convince them. Hey, that wasn't me. I don't know what's going on here. Let us go. It's like, no, you attack them and they're going to retaliate. They're, they're going to destroy you. And that will be the end of it and show over. But we can't do that. So let's just, yeah, all right, fine. Gone. Uh, the writer, okay. by the way, was Julian Ficus. Okay. Well, I knew it wouldn't be Nehu, Nehru. Um, because he's the one. It's yeah, Julian Ficus. The... And let's see what else he wrote here. He wrote quite a bit for the first season. He wrote The Man Who Sold the World. That's our um, Dr. M- it's our, uh, that was the guy on Pluto who was selling the yeah. minerals and trying to avoid responsibility for his crimes on Callisto. Uh-huh. Uh, and Mr. Ficus wrote, wrote Order. Order, right? Yeah. 
with the, the Church of Omega. The Hooties. And then he wrote this one, obviously, and he went on to write, oh, Supermax is funny. And um, so he did comedy, and he wrote... Um, that might be what this show needs. He wrote the next-to-last one called Bad Seat, which I called being quite a well-paced one. We'll see. We'll see. Oh, okay. Penny. Dante. Penny. I'm, yeah, I'm Penny. confusing names here. I'm, I'm reading Ooh. that as Percy, and I'm going, what the heck am I talking about here? No. Penny. So in this one, and in a previous one, and I don't remember which one it was. Um, Family Values, we saw, Well, we saw, we saw Penny twice. At least yeah. twice. And the last time we saw her, which is not that long ago, she was breaking down. Yes, she was. And, I'm... and not as bad as she was this time. And and my notes here are, please, please, please don't go try to find an expert to repair her. Let her go. I'll be happy if we don't see this trope anymore. But I'm, I, I can't help thinking that Dante is going to be like, how do I fix Penny? How do I fix Penny? I know nothing about this. I'm a moron. I don't know how to fix Penny. And try to find somebody who can fix Penny. Because cause that's just the kind of dumb thing I'd expect him to do. So I hope that's not a um, Chekhovian gun. Um, uh, Penny, <clears throat> we're, we're, I'd say that Penny recurs during the first season. When we first saw Penny... There was some interest to this idea. You know, is she a real person? Is she recorded concepts? Is is she able to is she able to string together new thought? Or is she just a, a essentially a recording that reacts to uh Dante in predictable ways based on only information that occurred to her until she died. But it has, and when she was met, uh, met Percy before she got erased, it was the same kind of thing. She was, she was nothing in this episode. I mean, she was so glitchy and so basically incoherent that, that she provided nothing in this other than just Dante, I guess, going to see his wife one last time before he's going to go die. That's what I got out of it. Um, Lucretia points it out to Percy. For him to rescue Travis, he has to be alive. And this feels like Dante is literally at the point, I would rather die trying than succeed at rescuing Travis. As I pointed out, not a pillar of, of rationality. Right. So that is, a, you know, part of, part of why Dante is not relatable and why a part of Dante is not... In, enjoyable character to follow along because he doesn't make any sense and he's just trying to get himself killed and everyone on board the ship also when he gives that scene with percy at the end of this well not the end but before he goes off on his suicide run and he's talking about what a wonderful person she is as she's grown up to and she's the most important person in his life how did he say that without throwing up a little in in because she is not a wonderful person. There is nothing about her that is a wonderful person <laughs> that I can see. And and he's constantly exasperated with her. She's constantly not doing what she needs to do, apart from holding the ship together by a string, apparently. And I know she's family, and I know he's going off to die, but man, he's laying it on thick with her. Uh, 
at at that point. And I and because he's so erratic and so illogical, I looked at that scene and I said, I honestly can't tell if he's that self-deluded or whether he's just saying it to be nice. Does he really think she's wonderful? I can um, see how he'd be close. Well, he probably does. She's family. Wow. Wow. Um, so there's the, hey, Percy, wake up. The ship's been invaded. Your uncle and Lucretia are being held by armed guards. Would you like to do something about that? Oh. Oh. <sighs> Don't bother me. Take a two by four to her head. But you notice that within a couple of minutes, she was out the door. But what did she do except fail to do exactly what she was supposed to do, which is stay away from the guy? Well, he did uh, go to the bridge. Well, he, there you go. <laughs> Caravaggio knows where he is. Yeah. He, he knew where he was, the intruder detector in the system, so he could have... I'm not saying Caravaggio isn't slightly at fault, saying, hey, Percy, by the way, he's just outside the door. Maybe you should not be here when he comes in the door. Then they'll all be captured and we'll all be, you'll all be stuck in the, in the, the pen. Um, except that Percy sucks the living soul out of him like she does me. And he decides to go kill himself after meeting her. That part was believable to me. That was the most believable thing in this, uh, in this episode. But Well, I'd rather believe that, uh, Colonel E.W. E. Bramwell, um, not sure what the E and the E and W stand for, was um, probably looking for a way to die as soon as he realized he was 50 years out of time. Quite possibly. Um, and and obviously we can't work our way into the minds of, well, another human being for that matter, but then a fictional one that's been written by, that that's not a real human being. Is that is that what you would be thinking if you woke up 50 years in the future uh that's such a what's a crazy scenario i can't even get to that but i was just taking the character as we yeah have as, him that he has no family has nothing well he had no family when he went into cryo yeah exactly, but he's a, but but and everybody knew he's dead and he's yep. nothing yep and the only thing he's fixating on is his mission which is to go go for their baiters yep I, I kind of, I, I get where they're going. It's the Raiders are his white whale, but I don't know. I, 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 maybe I'm, I'm just too personally fixated on the idea of the future that I'd want to at least find something out about it. I mean, he gets shown Mars and Mars is apparently a better place, which is what he was fighting for. And mm -hmm. the Raiders are fought back. And yes, they still exist, but the Raiders are fought back. I don't know. I, I, I think I'd be like, yeah, okay, take me to Ganymede and drop me off and I'll, I'll see. And then if I decide to kill myself, I'll do that later. I don't know. There is the whole bit with the, the cryo might be affecting his brain. I'll, I'll, I'll cut him a little bit of slack like that. Although he did seem to be pretty together by the end of it. Like he was, it was functional. Well, do, do you remember that um, episode of Torchwood where there were the people from out of time? No, because Torchwood, I got about four episodes in before I said, this is not for me. 
I grant you the first two seasons are a bit touch and go. But, um, <laughs> children of Earth is good. I've the seen Children, children and the, of Earth. And, and we can probably skip the fourth one. Um, and I've heard that too. But but, yeah, I, the, but there are some gems in there in the first two seasons. And, and unfortunately, my big problem with Torchwood was, right, this is – Torchwood appears to be what uh, a, a 12-year-old boy, boy thinks adult TV is. Yeah, <laughs> and my problem with the concept of I'll just state this and I'll get back to Star Hunter. But the my problem with Torchwood was uh, where were they during the John Pertwee years? Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. Or where were they when when um, when when the doc when the Doctor was played by Patrick Troughton was working with Unit uh, or wandering around the. Uh, Sewers mm-hmm. of London. I just wonder. I just wonder. Um, but anyhow, there's a, there's an episode of Torchwood where these people are stuck who are there from the past. And they got sent, got pro- propelled into the future, and they can't adjust, so they die, one way one way one way or another. They die. Mm-hmm. I might and, have seen that one. So that's sort. That's what I have in mind here. It's. He just didn't see a way to go on. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure that's what they were going for. I'm. I'm sure that's what they were going for. <clears throat> I have problems relating to a character in that way and asking if that's a realistic and and the writing is not good enough to convince me that 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 is that way. And you know that is some writers have it. I'm. I might not. I might not think talking Doctor Who. I might not think Russell T. Davies can write a plot to save his life, but he writes human beings beautifully. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. He he can he can make you believe that that's actually a a person behind those lines, and I don't get that with Bromwell. And so when he does something that just like with Dante, I don't buy it with Dante. He does something illogical. I'm not convinced that that's a human being making a mistake a human being would make. I'm convinced that that's a writer making a mistake a writer would make. And so to just to get to point C along the path. So speaking of writing, and maybe this will give you a partial answer. I followed up a hunch this afternoon when Electra gave her security code. Do you remember what it was? I do not. Roland's horn echoes still. R H E S. R O L A N D. Although the person who did the subtitles on uh, Amazon Prime obviously didn't know how to spell Roland, um, came out Rollin. Um, but I heard that again, and I thought, is that a reference to the song of Roland? Well, Google Not familiar is our, with it. Google is our friend. It is. Apparently, okay, the Song of Roland is a is a is a very old French epic poem. It's a Roland was one of Charlotte was a warrior in the service of Charlemagne, apparently in the story at least. And there's a whole plot thread where he's going into battle against the Saracens, and what when he blows his horn, he will call in the reinforcements because it's because then he's in a hopeless situation and it's time to bring in the cavalry over the over the hill. And when Roland does eventually, and Roland puts that off and puts that off and puts that off until finally he has no choice and he blows the horn. And when he blows the horn, he blows it so hard he kills himself. 
and he dies. Now, thought about that, and he becomes a hero and a martyr and all that. But I thought about this in the context of the episode, this reference to a person dying in battle, supposedly becoming a hero. Maybe a little hint Mr. Ficus was throwing our way. Could be. Could be him just trying to be clever. Um, (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes writers just like to do that. Like, I know this thing. I'll put this in there. But it does tell us that the Raiders read their epic French poetry. Yeah, the Raiders do come off very differently in this episode. Frankly, not nearly as menacing as they have been in the past. In the past, they've been dangerous. In this one, they weren't. But but also the whole thing, I mean, very ill-judged scene, in my opinion, where she's talking with a communications guy. Because I can't take him seriously as, a, you know, suddenly I'm now picturing the Raiders as having, you know, their communications officers and their chartered accountants and their, the, the janitors and all of those in Raider civilization suddenly is now become this image of what the Raiders are, as opposed to a bunch of ruthless ex-Marines that are extracting revenge and killing ships and taking their stuff and and so now they're they're you know they're organizing conventions and uh i i i I totally envisioned them wandering the halls having the the uh continental breakfast with their name tags on hi i'm raider warren clan boogeyman and and you know swapping business cards and stuff it it just it it blew the raiders from yeah i would be worried about the raiders a little bit too yeah now we're we're kind of they're kind of comical um so they got uh, they got they got a bureaucracy yeah yeah and and if they're that if they're that sustained then they have janitors and they have all of that uh, stuff going on. Yes, no, and nice. Obviously, they They've, got a black market, so they got to have accountants, and have, and they have um, dealings with the orchard, and they have nice uniforms. Yeah. So it was it was definitely uh, kind of. And the idea is that they're living out in on the margins of the solar system, and they're staying mostly mostly staying away from the inner worlds. Mm. Although in universe, they also do frequent some of the moons of Jupiter. I guess you call it. I guess we call that out, out the outer solar system. That's still the outer, yeah. I think. I think. Um, we did have a little bit here with Lucretia. Um, not much. Oh yes, yeah, I um, thought it was. She does a good. She does a good John Wayne impression. Hmm. <laughs> no. Well, she did one anyway. Yeah. Well, but uh, but, uh, but in, in real life, because this is what I get for looking up the internet, uh, looking at people on the internet. I found Claudette right? Roach's website. And she is an accent coach. She teaches, actually does, she does accent reduction for, for, for professional purposes these days. Now, you know. Well, I mean, I knew it was supposed to be John Wayne. So, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's a, I think the use of the word pilgrim is, is good enough for that. Yeah. But what I thought was interesting was, and then raised a question at the same time. Uh, let's play poker. No, you know how I feel about gambling. Um, call back to the last episode. Oh, is it the last episode or whichever episode her husband, ex-husband, the gambler. Yeah. 
Of course she doesn't like gambling because uh, her ex-husband ruined himself with it. He he did. He ruined himself because of it. And is there actually a difference about gambling for money and gambling for chores or barter? Because well, I, I don't actually think there is. Well, we're talking about her opinion. Because that's like, I don't drink alcohol, just wine and beer. <laughs> but it is still, it is still the still the win or lose the thing and it's i don't know I mean, I, again this is one of those this is one of those things that i i think i can safely say that i am neither addicted nor particularly uh attracted or repelled by gambling um so i i i don't the thrill of it doesn't really draw me in but you know money is just the physical manifestation of, of it's a placeholder for barter so you gamble or do you not gamble? Are you willing to lose things and get caught? Or are you capable of are you capable of controlling yourself? I mean, she's she won't bet over gambling uh, uh uh kitchen duty stakes, but as opposed to money. But if it had been pennies or the equivalent of pennies, is that is that less or more? Is I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that they that they that they remembered that she probably would have a problem with gambling, and then she went ahead and did it anyway. So that was eh, that was kind of a, a mixed message. And by the way, do we really believe that Percy would know the odds of getting four of a kind on an opening deal, five cards? She may well. It's one in four thousand one hundred and sixty-seven. Incidentally. I checked. Okay. Uh, I did not do it in my head because that equation is not, <laughs> that is not a do it in your head equation. Actually, I can tell you um, from having seen all 44 episodes that um, Percy can do some very impressive calculations in her head. And yet she just does not ever come across as intelligent in any way. All we ever get is we've been told he's, she's great at fixing the machinery. We never see her be great at fixing the machinery. All we ever see is her complain about fixing the machinery and not fixing the machinery as fast as she should fix the machinery or wandering off and doing something else while she's supposed to be fixing the machinery. And and here's another one where, oh, you're supposed to be so bright with math. I'm not, I just, I just don't see it. So now, there is an upcoming episode where she, where the ship is falling toward a moon, I think it is. And she um, does a visual check and then calculates in her head how much time she has. And, and yeah, she can do it. See, again, that would be better. That would be just like it is last time. Just like last time was the first time Percy actually demonstrated, actually demonstrated that she had something going on underneath the, under the skull cap. And that was totally out of frankly out of character for what we've seen so far so here we're back to the we're told percy's wonderful but we don't see percy as wonderful so i i would i would appreciate it if they could get around to demonstrating it to us somehow that that she can do that i don't think that i have anything else let's uh, see i'm double checking my notes and know that um Gets it um, on my end, too. The next episode is Goodbye, So Long, which is, um, I'll tell you. That was the last episode of MASH, wasn't it? That was 
that was a similar title, but not quite that. But but I guess I give you that this one is chock full of Chekhovian guns too. From this point forward, with very few exceptions, in season one, we are doing we are dealing with with we are dealing with Chekhovian guns, and we start seeing pay we start seeing them pay off very mm. very shortly. Well, uh, it will be interesting to see whether they hold up to hold up. To, to to the damage they seem to have done throughout the beginning of the series uh, by making it look like they're just rambling without a plan. Um, okay. Uh, what are we on? That was number 11, right? It's yes. 22 in the first season, so we're halfway yes. through. Uh, the first season and a quarter of the way through the whole thing. Well, <laughs> let's let's get through the first season. For <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's, 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 let's set our, set our sights... Uh, an objectively obtainable goal. All right. Kenneth, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> and listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series, Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, we'll be having a look through two episodes of The Invisible Man, Man of Influence, and Eyes Only. Come join the conversation.